0: Hello and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill, or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hey, do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources, We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life resources to learn more. See you over there. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. What do you call an octopus musician? A rocktopus. Did you hear about the new herbal fairy? It always runs on time. Christy Braden is an herbalist, educator, and owner of Mermaid Botanicals. She lives in the San Juan Island in Washington State. I've recently uncovered the world of herbalism, and one of my first questions was, is there such a thing as marine herbalism? Turns out there is, and this is what led me to Christy. In this episode, you'll learn what herbalism is, how seaweed is the ancestor to all land plants, some of the magical powers of marine algae, and what a day in the life of an ocean herbalist looks like. Tide pools are involved. I really love this conversation about ocean herbs, and I hope you will too. Please enjoy. Christy, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Yay. Me too. You are the first herbalist I have had on the show. And like I just told you when we were chatting before I hit record button, I've just stumbled across the world of herbalism and I'm just like so excited. I feel like it's a lost treasure. How did you discover the world of herbalism?
1: I lived in New York City for a long time and I'm from the East Coast originally. And um, I was working in publishing actually for many years after college. And was um, looking for something else to do for about a decade. And I happened to find a flyer for the Open Center, um, which has a bunch of alternative classes in New York. And the woman who I ended up apprenticing with, Robin Rose Bennett, was offering a class called Healing Spices that seemed interesting to me. So yeah, I took that class. And then this whole new world of herbs and engaging with plants uh in the environment just opened up for me and it was really amazing.
0: Yeah. So I mean I like how I found you was I'm like are there herbs in the ocean? So how did you make the shift from spices like a class about, you know, medicinal spices to the ocean and now you live in Orca Island on the west coast of the United uh-huh. States. So uh-huh. very far, very big jump. <laughs>
1: Well, I was interested in seaweeds. Around that time I studied with Robin, I was starting to study a bunch of uh, stuff about local um, agriculture and um, local foods and uh, alternative diets. And I got a bit into macrobiotics, which uses a lot of seaweeds. So I was starting to get familiar with seaweeds and um, enjoyed the flavors, which are, which is unusual because most people who don't grow up eating seaweeds think they're slimy and gross and have a hard time starting to eat them. Um, but I like salty things. So it was a good fit. (laughs) As I said, I apprenticed with Robin Rose Bennett and towards the end of my apprenticeship with her, I was kind of looking for a new life path and, um, she knew that, and she ran into Ryan Drum at an herbal conference who's kind of the guru in this country on seaweeds, and he's an, he was an herbal wild crafter, and so he takes on apprentices or used to, and uh, she sent me out to work with him about 10 years ago now. So I came to his small island here in the San Juan Islands and kind of lived off grid with him for several months and worked with him. And a lot of the focus of our work together was harvesting seaweeds, which was so much fun. I We got to go along the beaches and find all this interesting stuff in addition to seaweeds. And it just reminded me of being like a kid again, uh, exploring beaches of my childhood.
0: Yeah, that would that really yeah. was climbing over rocks and just like seeing what you can find and bringing treasures home.
1: <laughs> yeah. And especially not being familiar with West Coast, Pacific Ocean environment, there was a lot of new and really colorful creatures out here that I hadn't seen before. So it was very exciting.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned you apprenticed in New York City and then again out on the West Coast under Ryan Drum. Mm -hmm. Is this this is how you become an herbalist? You have to like take some classes and then apprentice under somebody. What are the steps to actually become an herbalist?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, The herbalist movement in this country is kind of a grassroots thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, about 100 years ago, everybody kind of knew local plants for food and medicine. Mm -hmm. And there's some interesting literature out there about what happened with that in this country. Barbara Ehrenreich's Witches, Midwives, and Nurses is a good reference. But basically, with the rise of the American Medical Association, it became that you needed to be a doctor to practice medicine. So a lot of herbalists Mm -hmm. ended up disappearing during that time because they weren't licensed. And then in the 60s and 70s, when there was kind of this renaissance um, with the hippie movement, a lot of herbalists came into being, and they connected with a lot of old literature. Some of them connected with this woman, Juliette de Barclay-Levy, who was a, a gypsy woman in in Europe, and she knew a lot of herbs. So kind of through this self-guided mentorship, there became this generation of herbalists of which Ryan Drum is a part that mm-hmm. kind of brought on this renaissance of, of herbal medicine. And so it, it's still very traditional and very loose in terms of how people learn. There is a lot of apprenticing going on, which I think is a great form of learning. It's so different mm-hmm. from our schools, um, and it's it's really val- a valuable immersion and many herbalists have tried to keep it this way um, because they feel like it's it's beneficial to not have to conform to any of the constrictures of larger classroom institutions. However, in recent years, um, there is some programming um, developed like at Bastyr University out here, there's an herbalist degree that you can get and there's mm. there is more formal training available now. So
0: it depends what you want to do. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. So I really like this idea of the apprenticeship because it's something I talk a lot about on the show is, you know, I get a lot of budding marine biologists um, or just people that want to like make the leap to conservation or just get involved somehow. And my answer is always just get experience, like volunteer doing something somewhere that lights your soul on fire. And Mm -hmm. so I really like your idea of like, and like, that's just the best way to learn, right? Like you jump in and do it not like learn it from a book. So yeah. I, I think that's really valuable. And that makes a lot of sense to me that there's an apprenticeship program.
1: Yeah. And herbalism is very well suited for that because there's a lot of stuff, especially identifying plants in the wild. If you're doing a lot of wild harvesting, you know, it's really mm-hmm. need the experience of going out there with someone who knows what to look for. Cause it's very hard to get that from books and classroom learning.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do like a little bit of my own like backyard identification and I get my iNaturalist app or like a local plant guide. And I'm like, you know, this looks remarkably similar in a photo. I wish I had somebody here physically to be like, no, you see this tiny little difference? Yeah, (laughs) that's the thing.
1: You get one photo and the plants look so different throughout the season and in whatever context that they're growing. So it's hard to compare one photo to what you're seeing out in the field.
0: Yeah. So we touched a little bit, you mentioned like the Chinese herbal medicine, and that's like the only kind of like degree you can really get in it is really the difference between, you know, Western herbalism and the traditional Chinese medicine, the the herbs that are used, and then the obviously like the official degree behind it.
1: Well, it's not necessarily a degree, it's a license to practice in terms of degrees like i said you can get a bachelor's degree in herbalism from bastier university there might be a couple of other programs yeah so yeah. those are those are, that's a couple of distinctions i mean chinese medicine a lot of western herbalists do dabble with chinese medicine formulas and some of the chinese herbs because it's a it's a really long and well documented tradition and they often do for formulations with multiple herbs which is a certain way to practice but but those formulas have been well studied to be effective so you know it's just one way of doing things with a traditional herbal practice but i mean my my deal is you know i love being inver- immersed in my environment all the plants i teach mm-hmm. about grow Some of them are native, some of them are not native, but they grow where I live. And, you know, that's where I want to be working. And, um, you know, a lot of the herbs that I work with are not well studied because they're Mm -hmm. local and they're not commonly available in in a commercial capacity. So, um, you know, I really have the opportunity to push some boundaries with knowledge about how these herbs uh, can be used for medicine.
0: That's fascinating. So you mentioned, you know, a lot of the herbs that you're using, just you might have some ideas, but it's not well documented on like how medicinal or some of the medicinal uses Mm -hmm. for it. How, what's the method of sharing that knowledge with others, whether it's, um, I mean, your students is an easy way, but like other herbalists in in the world that may be using similar herbs, like how do you, is there what method of communication? Like in the scientific community, you publish a paper, mm-hmm. right? Like, is there is there a similar method?
1: Not necessarily that I know of. I mean, there's a lot of different herbal community forums out there on Facebook, on all kinds of different platforms. And some discussion goes on there. There's some clinical platforms. So you can kind of discuss cases where you might be using herbs. And that's kind of helpful. But there's a lot of different herbalists offering courses and then they kind of present their work and they, you know, if you're in practice, you have a lot of experience working with clients and I think that's called empirical evidence as opposed to Testing an herb in vitro or in vivo, and there, you know, there's some there's some scientific study done to certain herbs that's available through various publications. That way, not necessarily done by herbalists, but done by scientists, and done in places like Germany, where there's um, a more where herbs are more common, commonly available in pharmacies, and they do. Um, a lot of research on them, so so some of that stuff is available, and then you have kind of the empirical evidence side, which is um, herbalists in practice talking about their experience and what they find effective working with clients, and so that that has a certain value too, and that's a lot of how um, we learn from each other. Yeah.
0: Okay. So what does your practice look like? You're not just out there harvesting herbs and selling the herbs, right? You're working with people. What does that look like?
1: Well, I don't actually work with people too much. More of my focus ha- so far has been education and wild crafting. So Ryan Drum retired about three years ago and I took over his wild harvesting business. So I wild harvest and ship live and dry herbs to various people throughout the country and some, uh, bigger companies. And, uh, then I, I do a lot of different educational stuff. I have done some clinical stuff. I did some clinical studies with an herbal mentor up in BC and I, I see, I see clients here and there, Mm -hmm. but, but that's not a large part of my scope as an herbalist.
0: Okay. So a large part is like getting people out and getting them acquainted with the natural Mm -hmm. environment and then getting to go play and find what treasures you can. Exactly. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you kind of talked wild harvesting, wild crafting, wild crafting is wild harvesting, which means going out and collecting the plants in the wild. You're not farming anything. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. Okay.
0: Very cool. So it's like going out in tide pools. Are you going to getting on a boat and going to more remote places? Or are they just kind of all around where you live?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, um, I actually, I live on two islands out here in the San Juans. And the one I spend most of my time working on and harvesting on, you know, I have a lot of access to shoreline and places on land to harvest. I have permission um, to harvest in various places, which is very important. If you're wildcrafting, you don't want to be doing it without a landowner's permission. On Orcas Island, where I am some of the time, there's very limited access to shoreline here. It's all uh, private or very cliffy, and, and I don't end up doing a lot of my herbal work here.
0: So you're kind of, you're going out and collecting the herbs all over. Um, You're getting on boats. It's not just like you walk out into like a set field and that's where it is or a set set of beach. It's kind of all over that you're exploring and finding these herbs. In terms of the
1: seaweed, um, a lot of seaweed can be harvested shoreline. Um, Mm -hmm. There's different tidal zones where you have access to the seaweed. So some of the seaweed that's higher up in the tidal zone, you can access that. A, a middle range tide or a tide that's not too low and then some of it you have to wait for a really low tide to access like a negative two foot or so and in the winter all the really low tides are at night so sometimes I'll go out at night and I'll go clamming because that's fun and I really like to get clams and sometimes I'll harvest <laughs> seaweed too at night in the winter but um, you kind of got to wait for March to roll around to do a lot of Springtime seaweed harvesting in the intertidal, and that's all. You know, you can wear knee-high um, marine boots, and you can wade in and harvest most of those seaweed. Seaweeds. There's one seaweed here that's um, local, just to the west side. Of the Pacific Ocean or our coast of the Pacific Ocean called bullwhip mm-hmm. kelp and that mm-hmm. is a little deeper water you could wade in about waist high if you wanted to get some but that one I go out and harvest in um, a boat
0: very cool yeah so what are some are there some like really big differences between terrestrial and marine herbs I mean other than you know, one grows in the water. Well, yeah.
1: Um, Well, land plants actually evolved from uh, sea plants. So Mm, like us. Yeah. The green, (laughs) uh, the green seaweeds, you know, there's three categories of seaweeds, uh, green, red and brown. And that doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. refer to the color that you see when you see them. Right. There's a couple other um, reasons that they're categorized that way, but the green category seaweeds are supposedly the ancestors of our land plants because there's been this great migration of plants and animals in and out of the sea over long periods of time. All our land plants emerged from the sea at one point, and so seaweeds are kind of uh, the ancestors in the more primitive forms. Seaweeds are also, I mean, they have a lot of uh, really different characteristics from land plants that make them unique um, and that make them a great food and medicine. They all contain some sort of phycopolymer or medicinal gel carbohydrate structure that keeps them moist because the tide's going in and out on them, right? And so they're exposed to sun and they're exposed to periods where, you know, they need to keep themselves wet. So they have um, this gel and it's been very well studied. Um, A lot of seaweeds gels are antiviral and have all kinds of healing properties to them. And so that's one of the great things. The other great thing about them or that differs from land plants is they have lots of iodine for one. I just read an article that land plants will uptake more iodine if there's more iodine in the soil, but generally there's not a lot of iodine in the soil, and seaweeds seem to have more use for it in terms of their metabolic function. But seaweeds kind of live in this ocean full of a wide range of minerals in in very basically all the minerals, uh, including micro micronutrients that aren't really available much in land plants so they're kind of this very diverse nutritive complex that you have you'd have a hard time finding in land plants and so seaweeds have are kind of super nutritious in that way
0: very cool all right so you mentioned you like the taste of seaweed Mm -hmm. right Is there a particular one that you like and do you eat them raw or do you like, are you supposed to dry them, prepare them at all? It seems like a lot to just pull it from the ocean and eat it.
1: Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll eat certain seaweeds in the field. Depending on where you live, you need to be more cautious about that because in warmer waters, seaweeds can be contaminated with like cholera and a lot of um, digest bacteria Uh, harmful bacteria. Uh, So sometimes people get really sick off of eating um, seaweeds um, in warmer waters, but they might even be contaminated if they're dried as well. The drying process doesn't necessarily kill um, any bacteria. Um, But here, you know, the waters are really cold. So and generally, there's not Um, there's no really poisonous seaweeds where we live and, you know, there's not a lot of harm that can come from the seaweeds, but the seaweeds do benefit from being dried in terms of an improvement in flavor and texture depending on the seaweeds. So most of my seaweeds I dry. Some seaweeds contain thyroid hormone or thyroid hormone precursors. And so if you're looking to use seaweed as a medicine for thyroid support, those uh, molecules would be killed by the cooking process. So you wouldn't want to cook with them. You would want to eat those seaweeds raw if you were doing that. And, you know, uh, there's a tradition in Japan of using kombu or uh, laminaria species seaweeds. We have a laminaria species here. Um, and it's often used in cooking beans because it helps reduce the amount of gas you might get from eating beans. And it's used in broths a lot and stews. So so some seaweeds are used quite a bit in cooking. Um, you will also remove some of the iodine in cooking, which can be beneficial because seaweeds like kombu are super high in iodine. And if you're in if you have an iodine rich diet already, it might be too much for you. So cooking the seaweed or soaking the seaweed to remove some of the iodine um, has traditionally been done in Japan where they eat a lot of seaweeds anyway, and probably want to reduce their iodine intake. Oh, favorite seaweeds. Well, bullup kelp is a great one that we have out here. You can powder it. It's super salty and it's not even necessarily sodium salt that makes it salty. It's really high in potassium salts. Um, A lot of minerals have a salty taste to us. So often when people are craving salt, they're sometimes craving more of a variety of minerals. And unless your palate is really well informed, it's hard to distinguish between like what potassium salt tastes like and sodium salt tastes like. Bullwhip kelp is really high in minerals and mineral salts. And so you can just powder it and use it as a salt substitute or on popcorn um, or on sandwiches with olive oil. It's really great. It's versatile. It's an easy seaweed for it's like a gateway seaweed for people who um, may not like (laughs) seaweeds. But I also really like dulse, which I have to order from Maine because there is a dulce that grows here, um, but the samples of it that it's a different species, and the samples of it that I found did not taste as good. But then I later learned that um, dulce is kind of treated; it's rehy- it's dried, then rehydrated, and kind of left in a room to mature, kind of like a cheese for a couple of weeks. So they do this process to soften it, and I didn't do that with the dulce I found here. But that's a good one. You can toast it up. A lot of vegans like to use it as a bacon substitute. And so those are probably my two favorite seaweeds.
0: Awesome. Very cool. So as you're talking, I'm like envisioning, you know, the seaweed that we have here and primarily far and away, it's sargassum, which is a type of brown algae.
1: We have sargassum here, too.
0: Okay. So I mean, are there is there medicinal use for sargassum? Like, can you just eat it straight up? Or do you have to prepare it? I mean, after what you said about bacteria in the water, especially warm water, I feel like you want to prepare it even if you could eat it straight up, which it's spiky. I don't know if I would want. Yeah,
1: it's, it's a hard one to integrate into your diet. I mean, it is invasive over here. I think it's invasive in a lot of places. It's interesting. uh, One of the things that herbalists like to say or herbal folklore is that, um, the plants that you need for medicine will show up where, you know, in your backyard, like the ones specific for you, all of a sudden you'll start seeing them everywhere or whatever. If you're dealing with a certain health condition, it's funny because in Ryan Drum's research, you know, sargassum and some other seaweeds that are particularly good for cancers and breast cancer like showed showed up in abundance all of a sudden in Marin County in California where breast cancer rates were really high. So that's just an interesting side piece. But um, like I said, sargassum has been well studied for anti-cancer properties and uh, helps um, reduce uh, incidence of metastases too. In terms of preparing it, I think probably it it dries kind of weird. I ended up having a bunch of random seaweeds sitting around for a while that I wasn't doing much with, and I ended up powdering them all together, and I kind of take them as a daily supplement. One of the best ways to eat mm. seaweed is to eat a little bit regularly because it helps to... Uh, kind of your digestive system, if you're not used to eating them, has to kind of start to develop the enzymes over time to get used to digesting them. And, you know, they're really kind of densely packed with lots of nutrients. So you don't need much, but getting a regular dose is good. So, so that's something I've done with sargassum is kind of done it in a blend like that. But the other thing you could do is break it up in smaller pieces and put it in a gomazio. I like doing that with different seaweeds. Um, That's the Japanese kind of condiment mixture with sesame seeds and salt. And you can put some spices and I sometimes put some other herbs in there. But that's kind of a great garnish or thing that you can sprinkle on a lot of different foods. So that's probably what I would do with sargassum if I was gonna eat it um, on a regular basis.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So for to create a powder, is it just more or less drying the herb, whichever herb it is, and then grinding it using some sort of machine or maybe by hand into a powder? Is that what that means? Uh,
1: Yeah, I have, um, you can use maybe a coffee grinder. The thing, one of the things about seaweeds versus herbs is they're extremely hydrophilic, which means they pull moisture from the air in a way that, land plants don't. So if you have seaweed drying in your house versus herbs drying in your house, and um, it's and it gets re-exposed to moisture at night or something or under moist conditions, you know, it will reabsorb that moisture. So A, it's kind of really hard to get seaweeds super dry. And I've seen kind of amateur people who kind of have really funky seaweeds sitting in jars um, because they didn't dry them (laughs) enough before putting them away. In the summer, I'll dry seaweeds on lines in the sun and like bullet kelp, for example, I could harvest that one afternoon and then leave it overnight. And as long as I have a full sunny day the next day, It'll be pretty much completely dry by evening, but sometimes I have to finish the seaweed in my house, which has a wood fire stove because um, I, I live in an off-grid situation. So that's my heat source. I, I've seen people do it in dehydrators and that seems to work well. You can't do a whole lot of seaweed because it's a small space, but you know, mm-hmm. for personal needs, dehydrator seems to work well. And then, um, yeah, I think a coffee grinder would work. I have like a bigger kind of dedicated commercial grinder for my uses. But yeah, you could powder You could even flake seaweeds by hand, you know, just break them up into smaller pieces and add them to foods that way or even add them to a Gamazio mix that way.
0: This is so interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I you know, and drying a seaweed in Florida might work like this time of year because our humidity is really low. But it would be a challenge, I think, in the summertime because you have like a fine window of extraordinary heat, but mm-hmm. there's lots of humidity with it, and then we have fairly predictable afternoon thunderstorms. So yeah,
1: I think I would think East Coast sun drying seaweeds is probably a non-existent thing. Out out here, we happen to have really hot and dry summers, so it works out really mm. well. But yeah, often with seaweeds you almost always need some sort of heat source on them. Hmm. That makes yeah. sense.
0: So seaweed medicine I'm learning has been around for quite a while. What are some cultures that have used seaweed?
1: Oh, pretty much any coastal culture. It's kind of surprising because I think people don't necessarily realize that, like for example, the Irish have a long tradition of using seaweeds, which I wasn't really aware of until I started working with Ryan. Um, and uh, some of my ancestors are Irish, but you know, I, my, my dad's family was never eating seaweeds here in this country, even though their grandparents, his, his, or my, no, his grandparents were from Ireland but like the Irish have these seaweed bath houses, um, which I haven't been to. I've done seaweed baths here where I live and they're amazing. That's probably one of my favorite ways to engage with seaweeds. Um, But they have these bath houses in Ireland that you go and you can take these seaweed soaks that are super relaxing and medicinal. And then there's a long tradition. There's an old movie, Man of Iran, about the Aran Islands off the coast of Ireland, where they show people gathering seaweed to build up soil in this very rocky terrain where there isn't much soil. So, you know, the Irish have long harvested seaweeds like dulse for eating and also use seaweed uh, for gardening and agriculture. But basically, uh, I think anyone living in coastal cultures at some point in their ancestry, you know, people were
0: harvesting seaweeds. That's so fascinating to me. So wait, seaweed baths, like, I mean, like, okay, you mentioned there's bathhouses. How did you do it? Or did did you go somewhere where you live? Like, is it just like, take a satchel and put a bunch of seaweed in it and like, soak it like a tea bag in your bath?
1: Yeah, good question. It's a tricky thing to do. So it depends on what seaweed you want to use, because the different seaweeds, depending on where they're growing in the intertidal, depends on how easily you can kind of break down the cell walls and get the gel extracting. So I generally use brown seaweeds, which require just lukewarm water and and a bunch of agitation. So I wash my hair exclusively with seaweeds, for example. And so I'll, I have these like mesh bags that I got from the grocery store, they're like produce bags and they have a little uh, cinch tie. And I'll put a bunch of my dried brown seaweeds in there usually a mix of them. And then I'll put it in like a quart ball jar, put lukewarm water, medium warm water over it. And then I'll either let it sit for like two hours or so, or if you shake it intermittently, that'll start the gel extraction process or get it to go a little faster. And then I'll use that to wash my hair. And so you could use a similar satchel in a bathtub and just kind of agitate it when you're in there. That's the trick to doing it if you have plumbing because you don't want seaweed going down your drain because it could potentially clog it. Even if you had enough seaweed gel extracted, you could potentially clog your drain. But I haven't had that problem in the occasions where I've done that in plumbed places, but since I live off-grid, we have outdoor tubs that are cast iron tubs that we basically light a fire underneath. And then I get like um, one or two gallons of fucus seaweed or bladder rack seaweed, which is a common one in the northern hemisphere. It's got those little bulbs that um, people often notice and it grows high up in the intertidal it's a great one for bathing. And so I'll just throw that in the tub and then I heat up the tub for a couple hours and then it's great. It's like you're like swimming in gel. So that's an awesome experience to like be in the tub with the seaweed. But yeah, if you have plumbing, it's definitely an adapt, a thing you can adapt to if you put like a couple of bags of seaweed. And I haven't actually found ag grade seaweed but there's supposedly agricultural grade seaweed or you could get a lower grade of brown seaweed from a supplier that way you're not spending too much money if you're using seaweed for a bath Um, so that might be available for some
0: folks that is amazing
1: (laughs) it is i highly recommend it to anyone who can try it it's like one of life's greatest experiences
0: all right. I'm adding it to the list. Yeah, uh, There's a few things that you mentioned that I'm really curious about. So the medicinal part of the seaweed is the gel. Am I understanding that correctly? It seems like that's the goal is to get the gel out.
1: Well, I mean, there's lots of medicinal parts to the seaweed. It depends okay. on what you're trying to do. I mean, there's the iodine and the thyroid hormone and some of those seaweeds if you're looking for thyroid support. But seaweed's gels or phycopolymers and there's different ones depending on the type of seaweed have been well studied for their medicinal properties so yeah often that's that's at least what's known in the scientific literature uh, to be the agent for uh, a lot of seaweeds primary um, medicinal actions but I'd say the nutrients and the iodine and the thyroid hormones have, their, their own medicine, um, for certain conditions as well.
0: Okay. So, and that's, that's more or less found like in the actual leaves, not necessarily in the gel.
1: Right. Well,
0: I mean, the okay. yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the gel, comes, the gel comes
1: from the seaweed fronds, uh, right. you know, So, but
0: the but the iodine is, you're saying the iodine hormone is, you would just eat the seaweed fronds instead of the extracting the gel is that kind of what yeah
1: well you will probably get some iodine in the gel mixture water can absorb iodine through your skin so if you're taking a seaweed bath you you would probably absorb some of that through your skin as well but yeah um, if you're looking for minerals and thyroid support you would definitely want to eat the seaweeds. Um, And even, I mean, even for the medicinal gel, you want to be eating them too. It's medicinal in the bath um, situation because seaweeds can often help to heal tissues and, you know, they're deeply, the bath is deeply relaxing to the nervous system. So that's medicinal, but fucus or bladder for example, Ryan Drum has this great story that, um, Another herbalist he saw at a class was uh, getting ready to be in a wheelchair because the cartilage was deteriorating in her knees. So he had her, um, he gave her a pair of his oversized marine boots that went just below her knee, her knees, and um, he sent her enough fucus for the year that she did about four hours a day of this. Uh, fucus gel in her boots and she put a heating pad on the boots to warm it up. And she did that every day for a year. And by the end of the year, her knees were healed, uh, completely. So some seaweeds that like incredible. Fucus have the potential to heal tissue, heal a lot of tissue traumas. I mean, seaweeds are great both internally and externally after surgery. Um, Yeah, that sort of thing. And a lot of people, some people, I sell seaweeds to make uh, beauty products with them. And I use it in my hair because it's great for nourishing skin and hair as well. There's a lot of nutrients in there that um, you know can can be softening and enhancing to all those tissues.
0: So that was the other thing I wanted to unpack with you. So I'm really curious. I'm always trying to reduce my plastic footprint Mm -hmm. and shampoo and conditioner is a huge one. Right. Right. And there's so many like bar, you know, shampoos, bar conditioners. Um, and there's companies that use aluminum bottles that you send back and they're really great alternatives. And I've tried no poo and all, I've tried all the things. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious, like obviously, maybe not obviously, but growing up in New York, I'm assuming that you use like traditional commercial shampoo. How is it transitioning? And like, does it work? Does like, is your hair actually like as clean and as soft as like when you're using the commercial stuff or is it better? Well, I mean,
1: I don't, <laughs> I have like, I guess I'm kind of like, I don't know, a natural herbalist hippie person at this point. So it depends on your standard of what you feel you want to look like, <laughs> <laughs> Fair uh, enough, <laughs> um, you know, and I actually, I mean, you saw in my picture, I, I dye my hair, um, different colors. I mean, sometimes I say it's because I wash my hair with seaweed that my hair is blue. But (laughs) because I do that to my hair, I mean, it's I do have to use some product now because bleaching kind of destroys my hair quite a bit. So uh, yeah, I mean, I still wash my hair with seaweeds, and that's great and helpful. But I do have to use some product for that reason. Okay. But also uh, part of the reason I use seaweeds to wash my hair and my body is I learned uh, in my initial studies as an herbalist that, you know, we have kind of this ecosystem on our skin and on our scalp, and um, there's a lot of beneficial bacteria there. You have this acidic coat on your skin that's a protective barrier. It can protect from a lot of germs um, and that sort of thing, and every time you use alkaline soap on your skin or on your hair, you're, you're drastically changing that environment and it kind of neutralizes the acidity in your skin. And, you know, I think a lot of people have dandruff and hair issues from the way they've been treating their hair with alkaline soap for a long time. So, so part of the reason I, I wash with seaweed is because I'm trying to rebalance and be more natural with kind of the ecosystem of my skin and hair. But yeah, it's it's great for the for the packaging aspect too. And I know I've talked to a lot of people who've been interested in washing with seaweed, and uh, so that they can avoid getting packaged things. So yeah, uh, but it does make your hair kind of silky and, and pretty soft. So I'd say it's it's nice for most people's hair. But you know, I mean, people also have different types of hair. So that's true too. I'm sure, I'm sure it might pose some challenges for other people.
0: Hmm. It's fascinating. That's a really good point that you brought up about like working with the ecosystem of your body. I really like that, Mm -hmm. you know, by working with the ecosystem that you're a part of, like the physical world, it works with the ecosystem of your own body.
1: Yeah. Some cool parallels It's very similar. Like I, I kind of, um, compare, um, my hair scalp after, you know, years of washing with regular shampoos or whatever to like kind of like a clear-cut forest and it's like Mm. it's all that's the thing too when you kind of re-naturalize I think it takes some time and maybe some assistance of some therapeutic things to regrow it's like the a clear-cut forest doesn't regrow the same back into an old growth growth forest the same way it will over like hundreds maybe thousands of years but it's gonna be kind of scraggly and weird at first (laughs) So same for your hair (laughs) and your
0: body. Fair enough. So one of the things that like one of the products, seaweed byproducts that's like really well used in today's culture and it's not necessarily used herbally or medicinally is, and I'm, I don't know how to actually say it. Carrageenan? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Carrageenan. Mm Carrageenan. Okay. So, I mean, it's used in like toothpaste, ice cream, all of the things and I understand that there's some medicinal properties to it, but it also has gotten somewhat of a bad rap. Could you explain like why?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that question a lot. Um, So there's a difference between carrageenan, like if you were to make a home extract of it from a red seaweed, uh, many of the red seaweeds contain carrageenan. And I've done a home gel extract, which is quite medicinal. um, And you do have to cook it on the stove to extract it from um, some of the red seaweeds we have here. I mean, you would also get it if you were eating it. But that form of it is a more natural form. The form that's used as a food additive and in different products is a more particulate form. So it's, it's made into smaller particles, basically. And those particles can get through some small spaces in your intestinal tissue and kind of wreak havoc. So that's why a lot of people avoid carrageenan food additives or foods that contain carrageenan. The only contraindication with uh, natural carrageenan from the seaweed itself is it's it really absorbs a lot of moisture uh, in the body. Like I said, seaweed's mm. Have this proclivity for absorbing moisture from the air, but they, but some of them do so pretty substantially in your body as well. And so, if you have kind of irritable bowel conditions anyway, you know the seaweed, the red seaweed that contains carrageenan might end up r- pulling enough moisture in your bowels that it's it's kind of irritating for you. But it's it's definitely not the same thing as the product that's in foods.
0: Gotcha. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a couple of fun questions to without getting too much in the weeds. I have a fun ocean related questions to ask as we kind of wrap up here. Okay. What's your favorite sea
1: creature? Oh, gosh, I haven't thought
0: about that one um mind changes almost daily so you know there's I no know, I could, there's
1: so many I mean I'm kind of fascinated by narwhals but I don't know much about them
0: um, <laughs> they are fascinating I actually just had somebody on the show talking about narwhals
1: yeah um I mean whales are are always fantastic and interesting and here um you know there's a lot of people who really care about the orca whales we have kind of Um, a local population that's been diminishing and people um, are are really trying to find ways to uh, bring them back into health. Um, And, you know, there's just a lot of like people know their names around here and um, there's just this big connection. And recently I found out that at least orca whales, uh, maybe some of the other dolphins and other marine mammals have kind of more neural pathways in their brains than we do. So there's the thought that they can they can talk telepathically or they have kind of a more evolved brain system and therefore system of communication than we do as humans. So I kind of think it's funny. I'm like, well, maybe they're the more evolved species, but we've managed to somehow dominate and look more evolved because we live on land and they can't do much from water um but it's fun it's funny to me to think that they're probably smarter than us
0: (laughs) yeah that is really funny to think i don't yeah i like it so that was something i did want to ask you you live on orcas island like Mm -hmm. you see orcas regularly
1: Not too much, actually. Um, And Orcas Mm. Island is actually named after a Spanish explorer. I'm I'm not sure if the orca (laughs) whales got their name that way, too. I think there's a distinction. I mean, I'm out on the water quite a bit. I commute between Orcas and uh, the other island where I live on a small boat. But the pathways that I am kind of on on a regular basis aren't really frequented by orcas. But Mm. occasionally I've seen them on the beach from the one of the islands where I live. Um, you know, I've made in the past decade, I've maybe seen them four or five times, just kind of like randomly out where, um, where I'm out and about. There are certain places that people go like on San Juan Island. There's a park where it's known that, you know, you'll almost always see orcas there. And then they have people who do whale watching trips as well. So right yeah
0: very cool if you were given a blank check unlimited funding for any projects or projects up to three what would you use the money for
1: oh gosh well I feel like this should be an altruistic answer I have so many personal projects that I could fund <laughs>
0: um <laughs> it's 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 the answer's up to you it's a blank yeah. check what do you want it for
1: oh gosh I mean I where where I live and in my work I'm kind of just getting started with a lot of infrastructure like I said I I live off grid so there's a lot to put in place like solar panels and a rain catchment system and that sort of thing and I did some fundraising actually for an herb drying structure that I'm going to build this year so that's kind of already there oh you know what I'd probably get a boat <laughs> That's probably what I <laughs> what I would do. Cause I don't I don't have my own boat yet. I don't even have a little rowboat, which I would love.
0: It's a good use of the funds. I fully endorse that. Thanks.
1: <laughs>
0: Is there a specific like project or apprenticeship or um like something that you want to see get off the ground that you just like don't have the capital for? It's kind of, it's like a total pie in the sky question. Well,
1: that's actually a good point. Um so I, I have run this apprenticeship program for, well, I, I ran it five years ago, and then it's been on hiatus variously. Mm-hmm. We're gearing up to start this April again. But initially, I was I was trying to get some grants for that program because here in the islands, we kind of have a weird demographic of of people and income. There's a lot of older, wealthy folks here. Um, and then the working class is often really struggling. So since I, I teach kind of a hyper local program, a lot of students are in need of scholarship to to join my apprenticeship program. So I've been trying to get funding for that. And then we were we were on hiatus because of COVID. So um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get things together to start this year, but. Yeah, I I'll have to look into funding probably for next year again. So so that would be a good use for sure.
0: I like it. So your apprenticeship program, it, it focuses primarily on just on what's around where you live, correct? It's not like necessarily like an all-encompassing herbalism course,
1: right? It's a it's an immersive learning experience, and it's a three-year cycle. So the goal is to learn about all as many land and sea plants as we can that grow in our area. Most of uh, the ones that do are covered. So, yeah.
0: Very cool. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be just like a really fun day, you know, out in the tidal pools or it could just be like a day that things happened and it makes a really great story now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's a lot, it's always really fun to be out in the field and it's always really fun to be out in the intertidal. But I think the best story is in my early days of harvesting with Ryan Drum, we were out in the intertidal at a low tide one day in the summer. And at this place where we're harvesting, there's a couple of sandbars um, and the tide was out past the sandbars. So we're in the intertidal uh, closer to shore before the sandbar. And um, I'm kind of doing something and Ryan's off a ways and he's like, Christy, quick, come look. <laughs> and then I see him wrestling to put this octopus in a bucket. And, <laughs> and I was like, what? Um, so he's trying to get this octopus into one of our harvesting buckets and he has to shove another bucket on, on, on top of it, to keep it in there because this thing is like crawling out and it's got its arms all over him and i hate and i hate to say that treatment for um people are sent who are sensitive um <laughs> but uh anyway that's what happened and so then you know ryan's like a scientist his background's in Oh gosh, I'm going to forget now. Um biochemistry, I think. And so any so anyway, he you know, he's got a doctorate in science. So he wanted to go up to the farm nearby and use their scale to weigh it. Um so we did that and it was kind of like subdued into this blob in the in the bottom of the bucket. And then Ryan also wanted to eat it and I'm like, "Ryan, I I hear that octopus is really hard to cook and you know um, we got all this other food to eat so why don't why don't we just let it go and so we let it go and it kind of it was it was like a maroon red color and it just (laughs) kind of filled up it wasn't that big I forget how much it weighed it was probably about the size of oh I don't know what to compare it to like like maybe a couple couple feet long. Uh, but anyway, it like filled up its head with water and and then it just like expelled it. And then it, you see its tentacles just kind of very fluidly flowing behind it. And then it just kind of sit, sat there on this rock staring up at us and it had these bright yellow eyes and it looked really pissed off <laughs> that we had mistreated it. But it was so, it was so beautiful to, to see it once we released it. Um, so that was really great. And I think, I think you know, Ryan had been out in the intertidal like that for the, the last 40 years. And I think that was the only time he ever saw and caught an octopus or even saw, came across an octopus in there. Um, so that <laughs> was a really neat experience.
0: Oh, you know, the octopus was just as curious about you guys and then was like, that was rude. I did not like the bucket. <laughs> exactly. Well, I wouldn't like the bucket either.
1: But it was so neat to see it go through all those shape changes because they're so malleable. Like, that. I mean, I don't mm. know much about them, but it it was like just this blob of gel, like totally didn't look like the shape and form that we saw when it was in the water, when it was in the bucket. So it was really neat to see all that.
0: That is awesome. Very cool. Yeah. At the end of each episode, I like to leave my audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today?
1: Um. Yeah, what I really like to talk about in my seaweed classes is or encourage people to do is get out there and connect with your oceans, especially. I mean, you know, go, go out there and connect with your local land plant environment too. Um, Because I think that's what's really missing in our culture. Um, You know, we've gone from being very distant and separate from our environments to being kind of curious and caring and, and conservative about it. And that like, oh, we don't want to touch anything because we've seen what industry has done to, um, you know, take advantage of natural resources, but I like to encourage people in a small way to really work with the plants around them and engage with them in the field in in a way that feels good to them because I think that's really, um, um, it helps us to be a a wise part of our environment again and and to integrate and learn what the plants are doing over the seasons and really Um, understand and become a part of that environment and I think connecting with our oceans in whatever way you can is especially important right now because there's a lot of contaminants that end up going in our oceans and our oceans are mistreated in many ways and you know many people don't want to eat from the oceans and engage with them that way anymore because they're concerned about contaminants but I think our oceans need us to engage with them and send them love and in some way um, that feels good to us like I I swim in our oceans our ocean here almost every day which is very cold um, Mm -hmm. and I don't wear a wetsuit but it's a great practice and it's a great way to really feel the ocean because you know ocean touches all the lands that we live on on this on this planet and you're really connecting with other people through uh, that ocean connection.
0: Mm. I really like that. Yeah. It's really poetic. It touches all the land. It's true. It's very true. Mm-hmm. And water is fluid. amazing. I have a bonus question I'm going to ask you because I'm interested as well. If listeners are interested in learning more about herbalism, where's like a good beginner place to start?
1: Well, there's learningherbs.com, which is uh, John Gallagher's site. That has a lot of pretty basic introductory stuff. Some of it's free, and some of it is courses you can buy or uh, kits you can buy. So that's a great place to start. If there are herbal medicine conferences going on in your area, that's a great way to explore I, you know, I felt like the herbal world really opened up for me when I went to my first conference, because then there was just such a variety of teachers there and you learn all kinds of different things. And then you figure out kind of what style of herbalism resonates with you most. Those are a couple of great things people can do uh, or just, you know, even get a couple of good field guides to start identifying plants in your backyard. And you know, you can teach yourself to just engage with plants in your own way um, by drawing them or sitting with them, or just just spending time in your environment and learning about them that way is, is really cool too.
0: Love it. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you or your work, where's the best place to do so?
1: On my website, which is mermaid botanicals.com or also com K-R-I-S-T-Y-B-R-E-D-I-N. Those are both links to the same site, so either one will work.
0: Awesome. I'll put a link to that and everything we talked about today in the show notes. Great. Christy, this was so much fun chatting with you today. Thank you for making the time to be on the show.
1: Absolutely. I really enjoyed myself. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.